On Make Some Noise today, I'm joined by a friend and ex-client, Alison Davies. She is a brain care specialist and a neurologic music therapist and just a really rad human, actually. (laughs) And I wanted to get Alison on because I want to give you a more well-rounded point of view than just anecdotal evidence here and find ways that creativity can really help us sustain and maintain a good sense of mental well-being. So Alison was a natural choice to get on. And I love Alison because her credibility comes not just from the fact that she has had 15 years experience practicing as a therapist, but also because she has real lived experience of autism spectrum disorder and sensory processing disorder. And I've chatted to Ali again, she was a guest on Carlosophies a while back, about anxiety. And this is something that I have uh, experienced most of my life. And I love that she brings music to this, how music can help us reduce overwhelm and deal with what's going on. It's a beautiful interview and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. This has real practical stuff, real practical stuff around how music and other tips and tricks can help reduce your overwhelm and help you manage anxiety. So I'll stop talking. Meet Alison Davies. Creativity, self-expression and feelings. Creativity, self-expression and feelings. Make some noise. Make some noise, 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 make some noise. Not only it's a podcast. Okay, let's hear it. All right, so today I'm with a friend and ex-client, Alison Davies, who used to be in my mastermind with Lisa last year. She is a brain care specialist and a musical, no, a neurologic music therapist. Did I get that right? Yeah, I did. That's right. Perfect. Uh, and today I really wanted to get Ali on because, well, she's a fucking legend, but also because I, you know, I think this is the thing, right? Like I have all these theories about creative expression and music and art and just expressing emotions um, from personal experience, but no science to back that shit up at all. <laughs> Hence getting on some people who do have, um, you know, a little bit more Mm, I was going to say professionalism, um, a little bit more of cred, credibility. You know, <laughs> mine, mine is just really uh, a personal experience. That's about it. So, Ali. That's basically the most powerful kind of experience. Well, yet, that's it. You know, when, <laughs> yeah, like if you, I've experienced depression and anxiety and I've moved my way through it and in kind of what I would call a maintenance mode you know, now where sometimes I experience anxiety from time to time, but I am really connected to my emotional self and my expressive self, which is really helping me. Yeah. Um, and that might be anecdotal, but it feels legit because. No, I totally, it. I have a theory around this that I, I travel all around Australia and teach this exact theory. And I call that the management stage. Yes. Yeah. So the whole focus, the focus should never, ever be on managing the anxiety. When the anxiety is there, you just allow it and let yes. go. And the whole rest of your life is the management stage. Yes. And I love that you say that because you're, you've got credibility. 
Um, and, <laughs> and also, and also personal experience. So that mm-hmm. is what makes you such a powerful teacher, mentor, guide through this process, process, whatever, through this experience, because you have firsthand experience with anxiety, sensory processing disorder, autism, and, mm-hmm. and that, 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 that holds more weight for me than someone who's got the white jacket on dishing out pills that hasn't yeah. ever had experience with any mental health challenges. Absolutely. Yep. So I want to explore, um, because I guess where maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, where you kind of started in this was with the neurologic music therapy work. Yeah. What brought you to that and, and how does it kind of work? Okay, well, the reason I got to that point, I had a bit of a like, I don't know if it was a breakthrough or a breakdown, but I think it was both in, in 2000. <laughs> Simultaneously. Yeah, <laughs> Just, that's how they all work, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I was work had been working as a music therapist for many years, like a, more than a decade at this point, and I just was becoming disillusioned with the model of going to the weekly therapist, especially because almost all the kids I was seeing, they were going to the music therapist, speech pathologist, psychologist, occupational therapist, and children or anyone experiencing anxiety or any kind of thing that's stopping them from thriving in life, um, taking them out of school and out of their daily routine to go to session after session every week, it's like crazy. And and also I imagine, so sorry to interrupt, also (laughs) I imagine like quite quite um like confirming that there's something wrong with them that they're different from the other kids in their school Mm. yeah and it's not because there's anything wrong with the therapy or the therapists they're amazing and they're valid but the model of how it was happening just felt counterintuitive and the other thing that was happening was that parents by no fault of their own but just because of the way this all works they were becoming less empowered about the fact that they could have an influence in managing their kids' anxiety or sport needs and were thinking or believing that going to the therapy sessions would make the change. And that's not so. But I also realised there was no space in there for the therapist to actually spend time with the parent, explain to them what they were doing, explain to them how they could make changes at home and how they could be the change maker and support their children's needs in a way that helped everybody thrive. So I just couldn't stay. I actually, I completely closed down my entire private practice at that point, partly because of the breakdown and partly because I just could not work in that. Once I realized that that model to me didn't align, I just couldn't do it. So that's when I went and studied neurologic music therapy with the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy. And, um, I learned more about how the brain responds to music mm. and how you can use music as a way of supporting brain functioning because when we support our brain to function at its best, all of the behaviours and the anxiety and all of the shit just tends to resolve itself or reduce or become less prevalent. The anxiety and the behavioural issues and the meltdowns and all the things that we think of as problems are always a byproduct of what's going on in the brain. So I completely shifted my focus from therapy to um, helping parents and educators and service providers understand how to support their kids' brain functioning 
Does that make sense? That was yeah. a bit of a rant. Yeah, no, no. So what's the difference between a standard music therapist and a neurologic music therapist? Is it really so, understanding more about how the brain actually responds to the stimulus? Yeah, I'm not doing what so neurologic music therapy has a has a series of um actual uh what are they called? processes. I don't know what they're called. I've forgotten the word. It's gone. But um, it's very it's very strict. Like you follow this if your client has this, if they've had a stroke, if this is the issue, this is the issue, then follow this process, then this, then this, because it's all based on research and science and it's very much scientific based. What I was doing before was very social behavioral based and client focused. So a child would come to me, we'd do an assessment, I'd um I'd talk to the parents and, you know, we'd work out what areas they needed assistance in and then it would often be very social and emotional and stuff that was non-quantitative. So it was a lot more, in a way, I loved that because the outcomes, they didn't have to be measured with tools and it wasn't like a lot of other therapies where you do a pre-assessment, you do a post-assessment, you have a quantifiable outcome. It was just parents were coming and noticing a difference in their children and that was a beautiful thing. But one of the things I love about neurologic music therapy by the same token is that there are like actual tools and assessments so that you can totally see the therapeutic change. So that's really cool. But what I'm actually doing is really not even neurologic music therapy. That gave me the the, the greater information that I needed about the brain and how it functions, but I'm really, I'm I'm working in the education space now. So I'm not even doing the therapy. I'm teaching other people how they can be the change maker, you know? Yeah. So cool. Okay. So the work now that you do as an educator, is it still focused around music as as a therapy or is it more focused around the brain, how it works, how you can look after it? It's mainly for, well, both, but my first focus is always the information about how the brain functions and childhood brain develop and what to development, childhood brain development and what to expect of children because when you understand the stages of development, you really understand that what we're expecting is literally impossible for children under the age of five. So the information always has to come first and then we talk about brain functioning, how it develops, what's going on in there, and then I always move on to strategies, how you can support the brain to function at its best. Music is one of the best for this because when you experience music and when you experience it, it can be either listening to it, making it yourself, or even just thinking about it. When you do either any of those three things, more parts of your brain activate simultaneously than any other thing that's ever been researched. So music truly is, as far as the research can show us, like the absolute top of the bar in terms of how you can support your brain. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that is so cool. So what, like, this is probably a totally out-of-the-box question, but why do you think that is? Because music is one of the mother tongues of the brain. Mm. It's a It's a biological language. There are three languages that our brain 
users, yeah, like three mother tongues, let's call it that. One of them is our language, the way we communicate with our words. One of them is our creative expression, the way we express ourselves as a person. And the third one is music. Mm. Our brain, every part of our brain <laughs> has uses elements of music, rhythm, melody, repetition, pulse, driving force, vibration, all the different things that together, when you put them all together, it makes what we see as music. Yeah, and I guess like from the beginning of our time, you know, as a human being, in yeah. the bir- like inside our mother, boom, boom, yep, boom, yeah. So you know, and all the other, yeah, kind of farty noises that are going on inside someone. <laughs> the squelchy water just wiggling around. Yeah, in the squelchy, squelchy. Uh, yeah, and the vibration of the mother's voice. So when you are born. And even music, right? Because we're often listening to music or singing, like for for me anyway, uh, driving around in my car, listening to music, pregnant, singing. Like they're Mm -hmm. hearing that before they can even see anything Mm -hmm. or touch anything outside of themselves. That's so, I've never thought of it that way. That is incredibly powerful. That's one of the ways that you develop your emotional connection with your baby before it's born because the baby is experiencing your vibration. Yeah. When we sing, we create a higher vibration than when we speak. When we laugh, we create a really, really high vibration. So when you're laughing when you're pregnant, the baby is getting good vibes to the max. And it affects the water because sound waves yeah. are like that little wiggly wave. Uh, and when it gets to water, it makes the water move and churn and spit and it energizes it. So your baby is literally floating in water. So when you sing, when you're pregnant, you are creating a environment for your child where they're experiencing stuff for the first time. Yeah, and that makes, okay, so that makes so much sense when we're talking about things like sound healing, right? You mm-hmm. know, if, if you've been to like a sound healing bath or something when you're just kind of lying there and all them, and you can actually feel it reverberating yeah. through your yeah. body because, I mean, we're vibration too, right? Yeah. I've actually, um, I, in my music show, I also have an instrument shop and I sell singing bowls and I do this demonstration where I, I fill up the singing bowl to about 75% full because that's sort of equal with our body is like 75% water. And then I strike the singing bowl or I make it sing by, by you know, turning the mallet around the rim of the bowl and you can literally see the water spits and spurts everywhere like it splashes you in the face and it goes all over the room. And so it's a it's an actual visual of what, literally is happening to our bodies when we are experiencing sound vibration it's just a really powerful form of vibration and this the vibration that you create when you sing is even more powerful even so if you're tone there's, deaf <laughs> there's so many reasons why singing is good for us yeah that's one of them yeah totally and i guess it doesn't then it doesn't even matter what you sound like it's more the the oh, act of actually cool. singing yeah it's there's a thing I think is going to I think this is going to end with our generation because no one is going to tell our children that they can't sing. But when yeah. we were kids, I know, and yeah. you know this because I've heard you talk about it, Carly. Yeah. And when I was in the choir, I I remember our music teacher going around and telling which kids had to mime, <gasps> and they were allowed to be in the choir but they had to mime. Yeah. Oh no! How devastating! I, I know. 
And um, I no wonder, quite- like then we go through life suppressing that aspect of ourselves, yeah. which brings us is totally natural and brings us joy. Yeah, exactly. And even though I wasn't one of those people who was told to mime, I remember it. I was a kid. It was the eighties, and I still remember it vividly. So it made an impact on me. And it probably told me that, oh, some people can sing and some people can't. And so there's a real generations, probably a couple of generations of us are hoping we're the end of this line of people who think that they aren't musical. Mm. But I I definitely think that that's just going to run its own course because, you know, in the generation of little kids now, I don't think anyone's going to say that to them. I hope not. And also, you know, the other thing that I hope is that, um, this this generation doesn't hear, you know, doesn't doesn't believe that they're not creative, because that's something that's really a sticking point for me too. I have so many amazing friends doing amazing things in the world, and they say, "Oh, but I'm not creative." Yeah, it's like creative in what 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 expression? Yeah. You know, <laughs> because create expression is one of the mother tongues of the brain. Like, yeah. we are all creative. It's the way we offer it, or the way we do it, the way our personal expressive flavor is our creativity doesn't have to fit into a category of what other people think is creative totally totally Mm -hmm. so I actually had a question written down Mm because uh who is this person sitting here I don't know (laughs) um which was like so yeah so that was one of the questions that I had do you think expression is important for brain health oh my gosh yes So I've been talking a lot about this um, with the people in my e-course this week. We've been talking about nonverbal communication. So it's the topic on the top of my my mind, which is great. Um, Actual spoken language is a really difficult thing for our brain to do. There's only one tiny part in our left hemisphere of our brain that is in charge of spoken language. And it's tiny and it has this enormous function. We're expected to speak and communicate with words readily and easily and and the worst thing is that when we're depressed or anxious or at our very lowest that's when the expectation of us to speak is at its highest Mm. which is ridiculous and also when internally there's this you know I know from personal experience with the depression and anxiety stuff also the time where it is uh you know we're also in this state of judgment towards what we're saying while we're saying it when we're in that place so it's really hard to express yourself in a coherent way or it doesn't feel like it is coherent when we're speaking it when we're in that place of anxiety yeah and even more so depression because we're saying the thing and inside us there's a voice going shut up you don't know what you're talking about shut up you know (laughs) know what I'm saying right now (laughs) yeah exactly and there's so many other confounding things when we're anxious or depressed our prefrontal cortex shuts down and that's the part of the brain that makes all the decisions knows what we're meant to be saying, can analyse the situation, comprehend. So being able to hold a conversation when you're in a heightened state is, like, impossible. So the expectation on people to talk when they're at their lowest is a really quite a dangerous one. Um, yeah, and not like I I can see the merit in things like Are You Okay Day and all that kind of uh-huh. jazz, but I also feel... Like just asking someone if checking in to see if they're okay, if they're in that place, kind of pointless. Yeah. I just used to want to punch people when they asked me if I was okay. Just like punch them through a wall. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember being asked even just like how are you and I would feel this like 
this literal block at my throat, you know, and it was just like couldn't like holding tears back, just like good. Yeah, yeah. Like what do you want me to say? <laughs> I know. And I'd feel rage that it felt like such a sacred question because I was so not okay and for someone to flippantly ask me in a at a time when I'm trying to survive and I just can't literally open up because I might have the kids with me or I'm just trying to get through the day and then someone asks me if I'm okay, I have this overwhelming like, how can you even ask me that? Like, <laughs> It's just the layers, the complexity yeah. of it all is horrid. So yeah. this is why nonverbal self-expression is the absolute bomb um, because we might not be able to speak but we can hum and whistle and sob and scream and swear because swearing comes is accessed from a different place of the brain. So it's actually a lot easier to swear because it's, it usually has a lot of motivation behind it and emotion. So you can squat, uh, swear, you can pant and howl at the moon and sing and hum and chant and use your voice and use your body as a way of expressing yourself which is so much more achievable than being able to put words to a feeling. And the other thing is when the feelings are so enormous, there just aren't words mm. that describe them. So there's no and words. so often we can't pinpoint that. it to something. You know, it's like yeah. often when people are asking what's wrong, it's like, well, it's so multi, even that, even that is multi-layered because it's yeah. not often what it's about. It's about something else yeah. that has triggered yeah. something. You know, so it's like, what is this about? I have no fucking yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is why the management stage is so important because when you when you cruise along life, or you don't have to cruise along life, but when you spend each day understanding that you are managing your needs right now and you're expressing yourself and you're being creative and you're using your body and you're breathing and you're um, taking time out and you're pulling back from too much fast-paced expectations and all of that stuff, that is when you are reducing the likelihood of getting to that really low place where it's really difficult to function or make sense of anything. Yeah. So it's really about prevention. Yes. So true. Like whether that is, because that's the second that I go into a place where I can feel myself getting stuck in inside of me, like that insular version of me, which is like, disconnected from the world around me almost it's like you know yeah. that insular feeling where it's just you in your head and all the all the all the things going on shut down yeah shut, shut down shut that's down. that's it yeah. right and when i when i can see i can sense now when i'm getting to that place when yeah. the thoughts are going around and around and around and around and i just feel like i can't get off this hamster wheel yeah then that is the sign for me before i get too far to like express out so it's yep. almost like you're you're going insular when what what you actually need is to you know yeah. express out absolutely yeah because because emotion so you you know this um emotion is energy in motion it has to move you just can't i mean if we were really really excited about something it would be so totally acceptable to jump around and squeal and giggle and run around and be mm. hysteric but if we are really, really anxious or experiencing something that the world has named as negative because yeah. the world has called some emotions positive and some are negative, which is ridiculous, totally and ridiculous. then we rant and scream and squeal and jump around, everyone's like, okay, calm down, right, yeah. you need to just calm down. Yeah. 
and Xanax, um, pop a Xanax. Yeah, and th- those and have a glass of wine. Be suppressed. Yes, they just they just build up until they become pent up, and then you have the meltdown mm. or the panic attack or the whatever it is. Absolutely, and suppressed so far like you know i i speak about depression as the suppression 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 depress it's like the the point that you reach where you've suppressed as much as you can and there has to be like the pressure valve has to be kind of released (laughs) yeah in order for you to like you know make some space to suppress some more or Find some avenues for expression. Yes, of those feelings that we've been swallowing for so long, because that shit will yeah. kill you. Yeah, and there are far too many people who spend their life. So that's called survival mode when mm. you're in that, and you can't function when you're in survival mode because half of your brain's shut down, and the oxygen is not going to your digestive system, which is why our digestive stuff is all part of it. And it's it's not go, it's not in there in our body, in our organs where we need it to be. It's just in our hands. Have I ever told you about the time when I had a meltdown and I ripped a door off the wall? No. Because I was so freaking strong in that moment because I was so far in survival mode. I had this big meltdown and I just grabbed this door and I started screaming and I was like, Rah! shaking the door and it came it's i literally snapped the metal hinges and the door landed on the ground and thank god my kids were like not in the room they were upstairs and they ran down and maple was like oh my gosh that door was so old can you believe it just fell off the wall (laughs) (laughs) and because i had this really cathartic thing i didn't do it purposefully i had no you know, I had no control over that moment. Mm. But because that had happened, I was immediately able to go, oh, my God, okay, I'm parenting, right, breathe and and answer her. And I was be able to carry on then until my husband got home from work and then we were all in, you know, um, the, you know, um, comfort mode and he was helping me and, right, what can we do? He, he did the kids. He ran me a bath and all the stuff that we do when I get into that heightened state. But, yeah, like in that survival mode, you are, you are, you just can't function. No. Like you just can't go around ripping doors off and not being able to think and not being able to remember anything and not having any comprehension. It's just impossible. But there are people who basically live their lives in that state and have no idea that they're in it. Yeah, and there are there are healthy ways that we can express that too, right? Like if we can pick it up early enough, we can yeah. express it in a healthy way rather yeah. than I mean, you know, I am I'm no stranger to the those rage induced, you know, moments. Yeah. <laughs> um yep. actually I was saying just before we hit record about, you know, sensory processing disorder, which is something that I want to talk to you a little about. Um mm-hmm. And and anxiety. So, you know, if I come, there's there's a point where things reach a level and yeah. often I haven't even really, like I haven't even recognised it until it reaches the level where I can no longer handle it. Yes. You know, so I might come into my office to do an interview and I look at my desk and I'm like, fuck, <gasps> there's so much shit on here. Like what, you know, and then just yeah. like grab my arm, rip everything off the desk in rage you know, yes. shove it in a cupboard, slam the door, and then and then I have enough space 
to be able to function again. Yeah. Not not a particularly healthy expression, but I think it is. Do you? Well, why not? If yeah, you buy why yourself, not? I'm not hurting you didn't anyone. Scare anyone? Yeah. You didn't hurt yourself. Like that's true. I, don't know, I think that's fine. Yeah. Do you know what? I in every workshop I do, when I talk to people about my meltdowns, I always have women coming up to me saying exa- exactly what you just said, like, yeah. I smash stuff all the time. I've just never told anyone. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, I, I smashed a mirror and I did this and everyone's smashing shit <laughs> and just not talking And no about one's it. talking about it. It's like depression 10 years ago. Everyone had yeah. it. No one was talking about it. Yeah. So true. Even in, But the, this is, yes, even I am suppressing myself by even just saying that's not appropriate. It's a perfectly appropriate expression of anger. Some I think sometimes I think a more appropriate expression of it is to get in my car and scream where I'm not potentially damaging things. And that is a practice that I have. Yeah. Um, or chucking on some loud music and thrashing around. Mm-hmm. Uh, or getting out a canvas and just putting all of that anger, getting my paintbrush and like <laughs> on the yeah, canvas. But all, all of those things are the things we do as part of the management stage. And then the smashing everything off your desk is what happens when it's built up to a point where the management isn't happening now, you're in it. Yeah. And it's okay to be in it and it's okay to smash something and you have and then you're back into the management stage. Yes, that is so true. Okay, I got that out. Now you're back to screaming in the car and doing angry painting. It's all (laughs) so valid and so healthy. This is is what we should all be doing. Absolutely. And there is such shame around those, like what society sees as an unhealthy expression of anger. But yeah. anger, and I mean, anger is just not a socially socially acceptable kind of, you know, if you, if you think about um, oh, it, it, just with like even the feminist movement right now, you know, it's like angry women, you know, it's like, yeah. and... Yes. What's wrong and, with that? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, as women, we're, we're raised to be, you know, like polite and nice yeah. and pretty and I mean, quiet. Anger is, anger is so important. I mean, anger is a beha- so anger is like a behavior. An anger, anger, an angry expression is a behavior, right? That sits above, um, usually, fear, guilt, mm. shame, and sadness. Yes. So you'll so be true. feeling any of those things and it'll often come out as anger. So you'll smash this all the stuff off your desk or you'll hit someone or which isn't, I don't think, that one. Yeah, that's no not a necessarily a healthy expression. No. But, but if you're not you hurting know, someone emotionally or physically, then what's what's to say something, yeah, there like any other expression of anger that isn't hurting someone emotionally or physically is a perfectly acceptable expression of anger. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's shaped, you know, I guess there's probably grey areas, but if it feels, if you can take away the shame and the, oh, my gosh, am I really allowed to do that and just look at it objectively, if whatever you're doing is a, yeah, like a harmless expression then why what's so bad about it Mm. I reckon there are people all around the western world just smashing stuff up at home and not talking about it totally and you know we even have those smashing rooms now in some of the cap cities where people will pay to get a bat and smash it up oh my gosh 
Well, see, the thing is, if we had a healthier management stage, we wouldn't get to this point. So this point is valid when we need it, when we're in that. But if we had a more creative, expressive daily lifestyle where we're moving our bodies, where we're expressing ourselves non-verbally and we're not surrounded by so much sensory information, because I do think sensory overload is the big one that we need to talk about more. Yeah, totally. Then we wouldn't have those angry outbursts anywhere near as much. Yeah. So let's let's explore sensory processing disorder because mm-hmm. this is the thing, right? I feel like there are so many people walking around in the world thinking that there's something wrong with them mm-hmm. when there's actually... It's the environment. Yes. That's yes. what I'm looking for. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about sensory, sensory processing disorder. All right. Well, let's just, let's unpack that sensory processing disorder and sensory overload. They're two yes. separate things. I'll touch quickly on sensory processing disorder first. It's an actual condition where um, it's an, it's a brain thing. Okay. So two, when you, when you've got sensory processing disorder, there's two main things. You often have very, very low thresholds for certain sensory information. So I have sensory processing disorder and I have very low thresholds for touch, sound and visual stimulus. So a very small amount of noise, like think of your threshold as like a cup and every single bit of sensory information in your environment is a little drop of water going into your cup. And so it's fine until it gets to the very rim and then it overflows. Mm. So my threshold for noise is it's really low. So it's a tiny cup. So I can be having noise, 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 and it's fine and I don't notice anything until that drop that takes it over the edge and then I'm just not coping and I'm screaming and I'm really rageful and I can't think and I can't make sense of anything and noise starts to hurt me like it feels like I'm being hit in the face um and so that is because of the low thresholds and then the other thing with sensory processing disorder is the brain gets a bit confused about what the sensory information is telling it and we don't really know why that happens yet we're quite behind on the research in this area but like so things like if you feel your clothes it'll literally feel like prickles or if i hear something um i will feel it physically that kind of stuff. But what happens when the cup overflows is sensory overload. So whether you have low thresholds because of a sensory processing disorder or not, you are a person, you have sensory systems that have thresholds, your brain has thresholds for this stuff, and so all of us experience sensory overload, those little drops of water that overflow the cup when it gets Which is why there's so many of us throwing shit around the kitchen and smashing shit yeah. up <laughs> yeah. and then shaming ourselves for that behaviour yeah. when yeah. it's actually just that we've reached a sensory threshold. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, if you, like, the brain's only purpose in life is for our survival. So throughout the entire history of humanity, all the brain's job has been is to Uh, tell us when we're hungry, tell us when to go to sleep, tell us when to reproduce, keep us safe, be in control of our emotions, all of the things that keep us surviving and um, that's its job. 
And then in the last couple of generations, Mm -hmm. largely since the Industrial Revolution and there's consumerisms off the charts and, like, every single thing has an entire brand, so you can't have one toy because there's 20,000 versions of it and there's batteries. You can't even have one kind of fucking peanut butter, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. There is just – and so there is so much stuff in our sensory environments now that the brain has never ever in the whole history of humanity had to deal with. So the brain is not equipped to process the sheer volume of sensory information that all of us have in our environments now. So literally nobody's brain can cope with this lifestyle. Yeah, which would seriously impact our decision-making as well, right? yeah, absolutely. Because when you experience sensory overload, what happens is anxiety. So the brain, if the brain can't cope, and so I think of sensory processing like an inbox. If I have five emails that I need to open, sure, I can do that. If I have five million emails in there that all need to be answered and actioned like right now, overwhelm, anxiety. It's yeah. just like, no, I cannot do this. I am. So the brain just goes, okay. I cannot cope right now. Uh, my only mission in life is your survival, so I'm just going to put you in survival mode in case something's going on and you need to save yourself because I'm tapping out right now. And so you go into survival mode, and when you're in survival mode, you have, like your brain literally hijacks itself. You can't think. You can't analyse. You can't make good decisions. You can't inhibit your behaviours. It's all normal. So when when we can't think and when we don't make good decisions and when we can't control our behaviours, it's valid. It's just human. It's normal. It's doing exactly what the brain is meant to be doing in this situation. So the behaviours are never the problem. It's the environment that has triggered or caused the brain to not be able to function at its best that is the problem. Totally. While you were talking, I was just thinking about, oh, okay, so first of all, right, so you that was sensory processing disorder Sensory, mm-hmm. what was the other one that you had mentioned? Sensory. So sensory overload. Overload. And so that happens to all years. of us, right? Like That's all of us. So the very first bit I talked about, which is where you feel things differently yes, and your gotcha. thresholds of soup can be super small, that's sensory processing disorder. But sensory processing disorder or not, everyone experiences sensory overload, yes. which is going over the threshold. Yeah. So for some of us, it happens quicker than others. Yeah. Okay. So like, you know, for me, I guess it's like clutter in a space. And so prior, actually prior to depression and anxiety, I used to live in a fucking pigsty. You know, my house was dirty. There was shit everywhere. And I was just totally oblivious to it. It would never bother me except in maybe occasional bouts of rage. (laughs) Yeah. But for the most part, I was just like, you know, um, blissfully. Yep. Unaware. Yeah. Um, also, I I thought, I guess. Um, yeah. And now I have a very low threshold for that. So it's yeah. like if I've got two baskets of laundry there, I start freaking out. We ha- it's too much. I've got to I've got to fold it up and put it away, you know. And and I guess that that brings me into this question of, like, when it comes to that management side of things. I mean, we live in this world where we are constantly surrounded by sensory stuff, right? We, yeah. Like we go to fucking Woolworths and it's yeah. a shit fight in there. Yeah. Um, like how how do we, how like how can we create environments for ourselves where 
we are protecting ourselves from yep. that kind of sensory overload. Okay. Well, there's two things we can do. The first, so one of them is manage our sensory environments in the environments that we do have control over. We do not have control over our children's classrooms. Yeah. My God. And we don't have control over the airport or Kmart or the market um, or Woolworths. But like sensory overload is an accumulative thing. So if you reduce the sensory information in your own environments, in your car, in your house, wherever you are that you do have control over, then you are keeping that cup just from filling up. Like you're keeping the water level in your cup really low. And then when you do go to school or Woolworths, it's okay because even though all the water's coming in thick and fast because that's a really sensory dense place, you're not as likely to overflow. And we can leave that environment too, right? Like yeah. when yeah. we're in our home. You know, like our, our local environment, the times, that, the places where we spend the most time, we can't just yeah. escape where if Woolies gets too much or, you know, um, or yeah. we're at an event, then yeah. we can we can leave and yeah. it will be over. Yes, exactly. And I have learned that it's much more effective for me um, and I do believe for probably many others to instead of trying to avoid sensory dense environments and social situations, it's best to management stage my life mm-hmm. so in my day-to-day life I manage it and I manage my own home so that it's not overwhelming so that because I am a social person and I am extroverted and I do, I do like those filled experiences but I if I manage my lifestyle I can cope with those sensory dense experiences in most cases and it might mean that I do come home at eight o'clock but that's fine because I wouldn't want to be out like past eight o'clock yeah hello who wants to be out past eight o'clock I'd rather have my slippers a cup of tea and Netflix yeah um so there's so there's that but there's also supporting your brain to function at its best means that it is on its game so when it is flooded with sensory information it's working more efficiently and you have more chance of your brain just being able to process all the information and do all the things it's meant to be doing without tapping out. So brain care, that is. And this comes back to what we spoke about at the very beginning, like singing and music. Experiencing music activates more parts of the brain simultaneously than any other thing that's ever been researched. So just the just experiencing music in your daily life supports your brain to function at its best which then helps your brain to work so that it doesn't go into anxiety so therefore expression is way way more important than than we as a society believe yeah. it to be yeah absolutely and if you look at our ancestors they were so good the way they expressed themselves the way they moved their bodies they fell to their knees and wept. Mm. Like, can you imagine? Oh, my God, we don't even give ourselves permission to fucking cry, let alone be so overcome by. I remember at the height of my depression and anxiety going into a local supermarket, uh, like a local shopping centre, and there was a school choir playing, and I was just so overcome by emotion that I didn't know how to deal with that I had to leave. And now... Now, after all of the years of like learning to express myself and, you know, 
practicing being safe in my emotions and all that kind of jazz. Now, if I go to that, I would be quite happy to stand there and cry. Yeah. Yeah. And if you had been able to do that, and if you can do that, you are getting a longer experience of emotional release. So it's better for you. The longer you can be in that where you are releasing the emotion because it, it needs to move, it can't be pent up, the better. And there's there's a real correlation there, Carly, because uh, the limbic system, which is in charge of our emotions, it's really, really highly to do with long-term memories and melody. So melody, long-term memories and emotions are all like hand-in-hand in in the limbic system. So when you listen to music that's really melodic, it makes you feel things. And this is kind of why, I mean, I'm definitely not the only one who does this. When you know that you just need a good cry, you'll put on the saddest song in the world and you'll listen to it 20 times in a row and (laughs) you just cry and it works. And, yeah, because music is one of those things that does evoke such emotion in us, right? Like Mm -hmm. even if you're thinking about it, you know, if I need to shift up, you know, if I'm just feeling like, right, I just need to like shift up my, I'm just in a real stagnant kind of place, Mm -hmm. I'll often play um, that there's that video of Oprah with the Black Eyed Peas doing and they surprise her with the flash dance And and I watch it. And listen to it and that the music just changes my state. You know, yeah. I go from this place where I'm to this place where I'm covered in goosebumps and I'm like, yeah. And so often yep. that, you know, if you have a look like through our Facebook feed, the things that people share that really touch them emotionally are someone singing on fucking Australian Idol or, you know, like yeah. X Factor or something and they're like, watch I, this. I think they're great. I use them strategically all the time as part of my management stage, which is just my everyday life. I'm whenever I see a um someone shared uh you know British Britain's Got Talent or whatever I always watch it yeah because you no know, it's like vitamins anything that anything that helps your brain to function at its best or gives you an opportunity for emotional release or expression it's like a vitamin like if you did that every single day it would help you stay emotionally healthy just like vitamins help keep you you know prolong you don't you don't have a vitamin and feel amazing but you're less likely to get a cold and so anything any creative expression or experience that's going to allow you to feel or express your emotions daily as part of your lifestyle is so so important so true so I've got one last question for you Mm -hmm. and that is what is your favorite expression Ooh. um Oh my gosh, that is the <laughs> look in a previous life I probably would have said sex. <laughs> <laughs> but now you've got a couple of kids. And <laughs> yeah, now it's just not as, you know. Um, I would say chanting. Yeah. I love to chant. And I I even if it's just one word, and I will just sing it over and over and over and over and over. And I know that that's good for me because it's activating my brain. I also know that simple melody is the brain's favorite kind of melody. And so it's um, it's um, activating emotions and the repetition of it. And we haven't spoken about this, but repetition and rhythm is really highly correlated with the motor cortex, which is the part of the brain that controls our movements. So if I'm seriously hyperactive or I can't focus or pay attention to what I'm meant to be doing, if there's something rhythmic and repetitive going, it helps me focus. 
So chanting has got it all. So true. I actually went to watch a documentary on chanting um, because, you know, I live in Byron and they're the kind of documentaries they show at the cinema. I've seen that one. It's just come in yeah. America, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like um, I mean, a I lot around uh, chanting, well, you know, I guess like in um, what's the word? like in Indian culture and stuff and bringing that out into the state. So I guess as as a part of, I don't know whether it would be religious expression or Well, what. I think it's cultural. Cultural expression, so yeah. So that's Sanskrit chanting yes. and stuff like that. Yeah. I went, when I was, um, when was it? I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I went to London and lived with the Hare Krishnas in the temple. Did you really? And I, Yeah. And I was one of those people who skipped up and down Oxford Street with instruments chanting Hare Krishnas. And it was one of my favourite stages in life because I was chanting all day. So my management was just part of my lifestyle, not something I had to squeeze in. It was what I was doing. And uh, I just totally loved it. And I love Hare Krishna and I love the kirtan and the whole cultural um, influence in that. Uh, And when In the 60s, this guy from the Hare Krishnas came to New York and sat in the park and taught and just started chanting Hare Krishna and people came and sat with him because it was the 60s and they were all hippies. They started chanting together and that's what brought it to the Western world. Um, But the, the actual act of chanting is what's good for your brain. The The words and whether it's Sanskrit or not, that's to do with the spiritual or cultural aspect. Yeah. But no matter what you chant, if you're chanting, you are activating your brain and supporting it to function at its best. And so good for children, right? Like Mabel is always singing something, always chanting something. Because yeah. I think like people think chanting and they do think of that Sanskrit kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, type of chanting where chanting can just be you singing Tigerland, yeah. you know, the Richmond yeah. Clef yeah. theme song exactly over it. and over and over again. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, football theme songs are a really good example of chanting, really. Yeah, and as a group. And, you know, and, and there's nothing better than that. That's part of the reason that, you know, I mean, Richmond clearly have the best song in the AFL, but the best part about, well, I didn't get to sing it very often because we were such a losing team, but that was the yeah. best part about it. Like we'd win and I'd ring up my nana and I'd be like, oh, we're from Tigerland, you know, and it was like it was like a community-building thing. I don't even yeah. know that it was about the win, but it's about the singing at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like happy birthday and I think it's to do with a lot of religions. They have hymns and they have their spiritual songs and it's an expected yeah. place where it's okay to sing. And we've and really lost that in Western society, haven't we've we? We've lost it, yeah. So it should be. Can you remember, like, even my grand, my grandfather in that generation, they whistled all the time. Oh, and yeah, my mother-in-law fine. is constantly whistling or humming or singing. It drives yeah. me a bit crazy, actually, with the noise overload part. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> if you were doing it, you would be supporting your brain. So yes. she's doing all the right things. You just need to wear earmuffs a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> or just drown her out with my own singing. Your own, yep, yep. <laughs> Ah, well, this has been super fun, Ali. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you let everyone know how they can connect with you and maybe a bit about Brains to Behaviour? Brains Equal Behaviours? Yes. Yep. So Brains Equal Behaviours is my 10-week e-course 
And the whole premise behind it is that brains equal behaviours, not children. Children aren't doing the behaviours. Children aren't, and the behaviours aren't the issue. The behaviour is always a byproduct of what the brain's telling them to do. So the whole e-course is about understanding brain development, understanding how it functions and how we can support it in a way that helps it to function at its best. And it's really, really dense in creative expression, non the stuff we've talked about today, um, and a lot about being in your body and moving your body, which we didn't talk about oh, today. But so it's important. So, so important. important. Yeah. I mean, it's um, so multifaceted, isn't it? It's not even it, it. There's no like one thing that you can put it into a box, like because for for years for me, talk therapy was actually really great. It helped me, you know, process a lot of stuff that was going on for me. And then exercise was a really important part of my management and recovery. And food, you know, there's another area that really um, yeah. can support our brain's function. Yeah, because nutrition is needed for neurotransmission. So the the neural pathways can't talk to each other if there's there's no nutrition there to power it. Yeah. And so, so there are so, so many facets to it, right? Mm -hmm. But I feel like for me the expression piece is the piece that is really really not that the conversations aren't really being had about feelings and expression of feelings and uh you know and and an expression of you whether that is creatively expressing yourself that non-verbal yeah. stuff yeah. you know so yeah so yeah yeah continue on with well, that's the e-course <laughs> yeah. um so you can find out all about that on um well alisondavies.com.au is my website, but you can find me on Facebook at Alison Davies Brain Care Specialist or on Instagram. I've forgotten what I'm called there. Oh, alisondavies.com.au. <laughs> I'll, put all the links. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Cool. And then oh, oh My Musical Goodness, is that still? Yes. So Oh My Musical Goodness is my um, music store and it's really important to have – I found that it was really difficult to access instruments that you didn't either need lessons for, mm. which cuts a whole bunch of people out, or um, or cost heaps and heaps of money and have specific rules about how to play them. So I didn't. I wanted to be able to provide instruments or make them accessible to people that you can do whatever you want with this instrument and it's always going to sound good. So no good. lessons, no rules, just meaningful music making. So that's Oh My Musical Goodness. Um, and there's, it's just I'm so excited about Oh My Musical Goodness. I, I I love it. I love it. I play these instruments all day. <laughs> it's so nice having a music storeroom at my house. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that just that playful expression when it comes to, you know, I've, you, I'm learning the uke as part of my yeah. expression at the moment. And it can get a little bit overwhelming because I'm, like, trying to get the chords right and stuff. But what I love about the UFO drums is just, like, anything sounds good in yes. any sequence. It's like getting yes. it's like getting all the keys that go together on a piano and just putting it in, like, yes. without any bad notes, you know? Yes. It's called a pentatonic scale. So you can play any note in a pentatonic scale and it sounds amazing. It sounds like you're a musician who's who's been practising this for 10 years. And literally, you're just doing anything. So cool. So that's Oh My Musical Goodness. Awesome. And, um, I'm about to launch a, um, which I haven't announced yet, but by the time you do anything with this, yeah. it will be announced, 
Um, the Brain Care Cafe, which is an online membership where every Sunday morning over coffee time, so at 10 o'clock each Sunday morning, um, I'll be in a Facebook group sharing a brain care strategy. It's just going to be something super simple that you can do over your coffee or you can continue to do it through the week so that at least once a week everybody in there is getting a strategy or an activity that helps support their brain to function at its best. Fantastic. And so they can find that at alisondavies.com.au as well? Sure can, yep. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. What a fucking awesome conversation. (laughs) I know. I could talk to you about, I could talk about this all day. So could I. Well, probably for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's a wrap. Go to carlynimmo.com to find ways to connect to your creativity and live life on your frequency. Until next week, make some 